This is The Guardian. The 23rd of March 2020, the date Boris Johnson announced the UK's first lockdown. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. As life for the majority of us has returned to normal, those early days of the pandemic can feel like a distant memory. But for the two million people in the UK who experience self-reported long COVID symptoms, COVID-19 is still very present. And for many, it remains devastating. It's something new, it's something different. It's your body somehow was breaking down <laughs> in response to this virus. And I hadn't appreciated that I would continue getting worse. Three years on, we still don't know what causes it or how to treat it. How could we possibly minimise or trivialise the effects of having been a previously able-bodied, fully functional, busy professional person who's had all of that blown out the water? Of course, that's somebody who needs and deserves professional help. So what do we know about long COVID now? And in the absence of treatments, how are patients managing their condition? I'm The Guardian's science editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Just to give you a sense of where I'm at, I rested for a good hour or so before talking to you. I'm currently lying horizontal <laughs> in my bed with a headset on. That's Professor Catherine Haymans. She's an astrophysicist, the Astronomer Royal for Scotland, and she has long COVID. And, um, I've got my eyes closed so I can completely concentrate on what we're talking about. And after our conversation, I'll rest for another couple of hours. And if I do all of that, then I will be able to sound completely happy and healthy and my normal self while I'm talking to you. Catherine, before you got COVID, you must have been pretty active. I mean, teaching university students, doing research, public engagement. Can you give me a sense of what life was like for you? As the Astronomer Royal for Scotland, life was incredibly busy, fun, exciting, always active. Uh, <laughs> also mother of three. Um, so there was literally never a dull moment in my life. So how has that changed since COVID? And, and when did you get it? We are actually talking on uh, the anniversary of my first COVID infection. And I've since been reinfected twice. So those uh, lovely three kids of mine bring the virus home from school. And I'm mainly housebound, sometimes bedbound. Yeah, it's a big change. <laughs> when did you get a sense that this COVID infection, which presumably you were expecting to be fairly mild when you actually got infected, when did you get a sense that it was turning into something else? Like many people with long COVID, it was a super mild case. Everyone in our household got it at the same time. I think I got it the least worse of, of everyone. We were, yeah, all uh, isolating in our house, three kids going a bit bananas. So we started doing some um, online cardio exercises, you know, keep fit. And uh, then after that, just couldn't get out of bed again. So yeah, it was it was about two weeks after I tested positive um, and six months of progressively getting worse and worse. 
And then I did start to turn the corner. And then, of course, I got reinfected. We often talk in our long COVID communities about this sort of roller coaster. You can never quite predict what each day is going to bring. So what symptoms have you been having over the past year? The fatigue is constant with me. But after my second infection, I developed something that's called POTS. So this is a really weird thing that when you stand up, your heart rate goes crazy. I I feel like I'm like Usain Bolt running the sprint and literally all I'm doing is standing up. This sounds extremely difficult. I mean, how's it felt for you to have your health just completely shift like this? It's a journey that everyone with long COVID goes on. Chronic illness is something I, I had never really thought about. You know, I think as a healthy person, you know, I thought if you get ill, you either get better or you die. <laughs> and um, chronic illness is this kind of purgatory in, in the middle of it. You kind of have to make your peace with it. And that's a really important part of this long COVID journey is acceptance. It's a journey to go through to accept that your life has changed, possibly permanently. That's the hard bit is, it's not giving up hope, but you can't fight this illness. Um, It's weird, you kind of have to go through this grieving process for your past self. And once you're through that, it's, it's okay. You know, you can still enjoy the parts of life that you can do. How did you first go about trying to get treatments or support for yourself? GP is obviously everyone's first port of call. I won't be unusual as a long COVID patient to have met a GP who told me to just push a little bit more, do a little bit more each day and and I'd get back to my normal self. And that's the absolute worst thing you can do if you've got long COVID or certainly the chronic fatigue form of long COVID. And the best advice out there actually is coming from the wonderful ME community, uh, so myalgic encephalitis. They've been suffering with chronic fatigue, some of them for, for decades. And the best advice for them is something called pacing. And it's the self-discipline to, when you're enjoying something, to say, I have to stop now because if I carry on, I, I'm going to have to spend the next three days in in bed. So it's yeah, the self-discipline of pacing is 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 really something. <laughs> and the other thing that I've discovered that's really helped me is something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy. This is where you go into a high pressure chamber and breathe oxygen. And I've been doing that for about six months now, and that really helps. But I need to recognise my privilege here. I, I'm able to keep my job because I have a job I can do from bed, which means I have a salary, which means I can afford this treatment. And that's not true for the majority of long COVID patients. And it's not a cure, it's it's like a sticking plaster. So those are the things that are helping me. Um, and I'm a scientist, so I read the literature. Um, and it's it's really exciting how much research is happening out there. And uh, I'm putting all my faith in the amazing scientific community out there (laughs) to go and find me a cure, please. (laughs) So I'm Danny Altman. I'm Professor of Immunology at Imperial College London. When the pandemic came along, we um, pivoted our lab to COVID research and Somewhere in the midst of that, we became very strongly aware of long COVID and have quite a a large long COVID research program as well, including a a study called WILCO, 
um, which stands for um, working out the immunology of long COVID. We've just heard from Catherine about her experience of long COVID. What are the main symptoms that people with the condition report? So people talk about 200 or more symptoms, but the central ones, I guess, are the ones that we've all heard about over and over again. Breathlessness, wheezing, chest pains, brain fog, other neurocognitive problems, and just a sense that their um, exercise tolerance has, has gone away and that they're very rapidly fatigued. And your specialism is obviously the immune system, so maybe that's a good place to start. What do we know so far about the role of the immune system in long COVID? We do start with the assumption that there's um, an immunology story to tell here. And people are keen on various different hypotheses. One that I think has some traction in some of the long COVID support groups is that people dealt poorly with the virus during their acute attack and either didn't respond to it adequately and have persistent virus still on board, if you like, a a persistent reservoir. Another idea, perhaps, is that they responded to it excessively and have a a kind of excessive inflammatory response on board. And there's certainly some evidence in support of either of those things. There's quite good evidence in at least some people that one of the things that might have happened to them during their acute attack is that they um, reactivated viruses that they had in their body. So most of us on planet Earth go around, for example, with Epstein-Barr virus um, in our cells as a latent infection. Um, And people will know it um, as the thing that causes um, glandular fever. Um, so, So there's an idea out there that certainly applies to some people that when you get your acute COVID infection, you're reactivating your Epstein-Barr virus and almost kind of giving yourself a bout of glandular fever. And then the last one I want to kind of throw into the mix is that we know that some viruses, including this one, can really um, mess with your immune regulation and induce new autoimmunity. So, you know, attack of your body's tissues, a bit like one sees in something like arthritis or lupus. And I know there are other theories out there too, like COVID causing microclots in the blood. But are there any biomarkers that shed light on who has which mechanism or bunch of mechanisms going on in their body? Lots of labs, including ours all over the world, knew that this was a good thing to do, to throw the the battery of laboratory tests at this this problem and see if you can derive some kind of um, biomarker set or some kind of algorithm that would define, first of all, who has long COVID, who has which type of long COVID, or even perhaps to predict who's going to get long COVID and do something for them before it's too late. And if you put together all of those analyses, there's some common themes emerging. I've already mentioned Epstein-Barr virus reactivation. Some labs have looked at hormones and found um, altered levels of cortisol, some people have looked at the gut microbiome, at the, you know, the bacteria that we all have on board all the time and shown clear differences there in people who have long COVID. So there's quite a lot of good stuff out there. Does that add up yet to a proven, usable set of biomarkers that we could all demand when we go to our GP, say? Um, not quite yet, but hopefully on the way. When you look across, you know, the trials being done and the the research being carried out, do you see 
potentially promising treatments in the pipeline? I see um, quite a lot of effort out there. There are, if you go to um, the clinical trials website, the portal, there are an awful lot of trials in progress. Probably the largest group are the group of trials to do with the premise that at least for a subset of people with long COVID, it might be because they haven't cleared their virus and have a persistent reservoir of SARS-CoV-2 on board. Therefore, if we could treat them either with antivirals or with monoclonal antibodies or with vaccination, maybe they'd get rid of that reservoir and get better. Meanwhile, there are trials on antihistamines, um, anticoagulation. I guess I do feel fairly optimistic that in the next, what, six to 12 months, there will be some useful answers. I don't feel confident yet there'll be a, a catch-all answer that helps everyone. But I, I think, you know, we're on the way. When we spoke to Catherine, she mentioned how the MECFS community had been really helpful in her journey in learning how to manage long COVID. Is that something scientists are exploring as well, the sort of management techniques that can be brought in, you know, while, while we're waiting for a treatment? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is obviously a little bit outside of my expertise, but when I talk about that long list of clinical trials that are underway and recruiting and have ethics, many of those are not just for, for medicines in the traditional sense of the word. They're for um, therapeutic approaches, behavioral approaches. One of the earliest lessons in long COVID was that the people who tried to power their way through their long COVID cycle and run and jog their way out the other side actually did rather badly and if anything made themselves worse and that you needed quite good advice and quite a careful approach to um, rehabilitating yourself and trying to find um, you know, quite nuanced ways to get through this. So I have um, the most amazing spreadsheet. I'm a data scientist, uh, so I data science myself. So I have a year worth of data now where I've documented sort of what sort of activities I'm doing every hour, how much, how much I do. There is a wonderful app called Visible, which has been developed by long COVID patients in Silicon Valley, because there are lots of people who have long COVID who used to have very exciting jobs. So these are app developers who developed this app where you can track your symptoms each day. And I think uh, yeah, anyone with long COVID out there, try the Visible app because it will allow you to see what you've done that's changed your health the next day. And that can help you rebalance. And before we let you go, Catherine, I'm interested in what your view of your, your own future is, if you like. I mean, do you sort of have in your mind, are you sort of framing it and thinking of this as, look, this is going to be a long recovery? Or are you thinking really the future is one giant question mark? So uh, as I've said quite often, I'm, I'm very privileged that I have a job. And I'm very lucky because I'm an astronomer. So I get to, you know, look up at the night sky and it's always there and I can always enjoy it even from my bed. And I have an amazing support network. And if this is me, if this is what my life is going to be, then I've had to come to the point now after a year of this of, of accepting that because I can't fight against it. I mean, I'm a relative newbie in the long COVID world. I've had this for a year, but there are long haulers who were first wave who have been living with this for three years. 
and it's a, a roller coaster, very up and down. But that doesn't mean I've lost hope. I am watching the scientific community <laughs> very closely, <laughs> and I am willing to take part in any trial <laughs> that's out there um, to help move this forward. As I think the majority of long COVID patients are, you know, we're all very happy to be experimented on because we want to find a cure. A huge thanks to Professors Catherine Haymans and Danny Altman. We've put a link to The Guardian's long COVID coverage on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Madeline Finley. The sound designer was Tony Onochuku. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. over and we are back for series two of pop culture with me Shantae Joseph we'll dive into the biggest pop culture stories of the week again from Meghan and Harry and this is why sort of turning Harry and Meghan into polarizing figures ticks a lot of boxes because it just drives clicks to Rihanna Rihanna rocks up at about one she just swans in like she's the most ordinary person in the world smiling a couple of minutes late and of course the chaos of my life I meet someone, I show my friend, they're like, "Mm, yeah, it's okay. Four weeks later, I'm sliding down the wall crying. One week later, I message my friends, I met you guys. This is how I dated 11 people in one year. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Guardian.